join us in the dustiest corners of the video store, the back row of the grindhouse, the furthest regions of celluloid. This is Video Store Nightmares. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the mystical films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about a really strange one, 1971's Simon, King of the Witches. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, as of this broadcast, you can find 1971 Simon, King of the Witches, on YouTube and Tubi. This title is not hard to stumble upon and is, I would say, it's probably required viewing for anybody who is interested in the occult. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's uh, this is as good a time as any to talk about this, but this movie strikes a really strange balance for me between seeming like a realistic portrayal of somebody who practices occult magics and yet like sort of pop 70s occult nonsense that um is almost humorous in parts. I don't know, I'm not articulating this well, but it's a it's a weird line that it straddles. Yeah, but the reason why it hits that sweet spot is because the screenwriter was himself a practicing warlock. Yeah, so the screenwriter is Robert Fiffany. Fiffany, something like that. He yeah, wrote you're getting cursed now. What's that? You're getting cursed now. He didn't say his name right. Uh, perhaps. Well, now he's been reincarnated with another name. So, um, <laughs> you know, anyway, he wrote, he wrote one other film prior to this called the night of the following day, but I've not seen that one. So uh, the only knowledge I have of his work is, is this film. And that other title has, uh, absolutely nothing to do with the occult. Yeah. The, the director is Bruce Kessler. Uh, this is actually the last movie he ever directed, but he did a ton of work in TV. Um, it doesn't seem like this has much in common with the rest of his catalog. So I'm really curious how he came to be associated with this project, but I don't know. I, I didn't, I didn't do research too much um, to find an answer. So if you know, let us know. So I'm curious. Um, so this movie had a couple of releases uh, on, on video. I, I'm assuming it got a, a theater theatrical release, but it probably wasn't too widespread. Um, this was released on Unicorn, which I really want the Unicorn tape. Uh, it's hella rare, but if anyone has one that they're willing to part with, uh, yeah, I would love to have that. But I have the, I think it's equally as rare, but I have the release on Trolley Car, and it's got Simon's face on the front, and it says, Witness the Black Mass, the Ceremonial Sex, 
the human sacrifices in Simon King of the Witches, some of the greatest psychedelic special effects ever filmed. That's one of these rare times where the box actually lives up to what's in the film. You think they're some of the greatest psychedelic special effects ever filmed? For the early 70s, there's some pretty crazy stuff in the end. All right, well, we'll get there. Um, I think it might be overstating it a bit, but... um, But I was focused more on the human sacrifice, you know, black magic rituals. Normally, when a box has that slathered all in the front, it's basically absent in the entire script. Yet, this does not, like, the box makes it sound exploitive, but this does not seem like an exploitative film to me. Does it to you? No. uh, Compared to most of the other stuff we watch on this show, uh, this is pretty tame. It is is kinky, but that ain't exploitative. Do you think that everybody involved was trying to make, like, a serious film about the the occult arts or do you think that that was just the screenwriter and everyone else was just kind of going along this movie seems played pretty straight to me i mean i don't think it's necessarily saying hey magic is real you should go practice dark magic and uh hail satan but it this movie feels genuine the screenwriter obviously gave a shit about what was going on and the actors seemingly gave a hundred percent i definitely don't think you could make a movie like this now like it's so of the 70s um even more so than most of the things we talk about like it feels very 70s and it feels like a cultural um i guess niche that you just couldn't make outside of that context can you think of any other films that like remind you of this you know, go, going back to your previous question about why this film feels weird yeah I, I think part of it is because the story like the the pacing of the script itself is very strange this film is very uh meandering i think is a good word for it yeah there at no point during this film did i have any idea where it was going except for there was something about a mirror it almost feels like we have our main character simon and then it almost feels like there's five different movies and he's kind of meandering between them this feels like a, a television pilot for a longer show yes that's actually a very apt description I would I would totally watch this if it was a, a fucking TV show. This, this is something like Netflix has to get on. Uh, I think the audience might be very small, but I would totally watch it as well. All right. So sure, the art of screenwriting has progressed to the point where you couldn't really have a script this disjointed anymore, but all the elements are there to make something just a little bit more traditional in structure without sacrificing all of these bizarre <laughs> like magical interpretations of of how man wizards can interact with the ether and the other planes of immortal deities and shit yeah i i mean speaking about the the meandering script though like 
I don't know. Did you have a hard time following the film? A little, but that's only because everything was just like a set piece. Again, again, I think you could chop this film up into like six different like small stories and it would be fine. Yeah, there's definitely some things I don't feel like I have a firm grasp on, but, you know, we'll get into that uh, later. We should probably talk about Andrew Prine, who plays Simon. He definitely gets, I mean, far more screen time than anyone else in the movie. And I, I think it's fair to say that the movie would not work at all if not for him. What do you think of his performance? I think that's a, a really accurate assessment. This guy managed to play this completely ludicrous character, which has so many like bad things written about it, but his portrayal makes you ignore all of it. He's like fanciful in all the right ways. Yeah, I I have not seen Andrew Prine in a ton of things, but he's been in a ton of things. Um, yeah, man, I, I did skim his IMDb, and I don't think I've seen anything else he's been in unless maybe there was an episode of Jag on in a doctor's waiting room. He, he might have been on one of those. I, I've definitely seen him in some other things, but only as like a character actor, like in bit parts, never as a main character. So, but yeah, his performance here is really weird because... I mean, I guess this is what you want, but it never really feels like he's acting. It, it feels like you're watching a very eccentric, but possibly real person. And it it gives the movie, like it grounds the movie a little bit, which you kind of desperately need in this movie. It, it also helps that we have both met in real life people who believe in this shit. So with that real frame of reference we can you know confirm that those people are just as weird as how simon acts in this film yeah but and i mean this goes to what i was saying earlier about the screenwriter but it's not he's not comical right he he's he's very strange but it's not over the top and so it doesn't come off as parody I think the the range of ways that the other characters in the movie respond to Simon is quite realistic. Like you get a range of responses, everything from being sort of entranced by him to thinking like this guy's a fucking nutcase to just kind of getting what like a lot of people try to use him, right? Like they they just want whatever they can get out of him. And it's you know, it's interesting in the movie how he like, it seems like he has a foot in the world of like the street, um, you know, associating with um, sex workers and drug pushers. But then at the same time, we see him at these sort of high class parties and being affiliated with the daughter of the DA. Did it? Do you think the movie's saying something in that regard? Like, is it trying to compare the lives of the so-called degenerates with the lives of the so-called upper class? Mm, I don't think the film's trying to say anything deep like that. I, I do think the weakest, well, one weak part of the script is that we don't really get a lot of backstory on Simon. Like, the, the movie opens and he's living in a sewer. 
And the movie never really explains how a legitimate warlock, a dude who is confirmed to have been reincarnated multiple times, who convenes with gods and um, kills people with like bizarre rituals, finds himself living in a sewer. Like, how are you not somehow manipulating the economy to work in your favor? How are you not somehow involved in like crime using your powers to at least put yourself in a position if you don't want to work? It it doesn't seem like he's interested in that, though. Like, it seems he. All right. So this but is. He an, ob, but, but he obviously needs income because this entire reason for showing up at these fancy parties to begin with is so that he can sell um, trinkets to. To, to people who believe they're going to do something for him. I don't know, maybe they do, but I, I got the impression that he was just selling junk. Yeah, he's but it's performing, it, you know, magic tricks for money. So obviously he needs it. There's just some weird, um, there's just something weird here that doesn't make sense within like the world they want you to accept this guy has, has kind of fit himself into. I don't know. It made sense to me. I think he needs money, like the bare minimum to get by, but he's definitely not focused on money. He's focused on like this becoming a god and like reaching transcendence, you know, like, all right. So to give a, a example, so Elon Musk has been in the news a ton lately, right? And Elon Musk, world's richest man, but it's, he he by all news accounts doesn't really spend any money on himself like he doesn't use it to live in luxury the way a lot of wealthy people do pretty much everything he owns is reinvested in his business enterprises and that's kind of how simon strikes me it's like he he doesn't it all of his surroundings and the money and like what he's eating or what he's wearing or uh, that all seems incidental to his true ambition which is to become like a god like okay sure so you can say all right this guy is some sort of like ascendant hermit but it still seems like he's interacting too much with society in order to to kind of to, to be a hermit right like the, this is like the exact moment where he decides to emerge from the sewer and 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 try to complete his um is that what it's confirmed he's trying to like do a perform like some sort of apotheosis i don't there's a moment where he's outside and he like is yelling at the gods and saying i i'm going to be one of you or something like that do you know the part i'm talking about yeah yeah okay that is coming to mind part of the reason why all of the the witchcraft and magic fuckery has such a strong effect on viewers is because they intentionally do not explain anything which is the best way to approach something like this as soon as you start to explain how magic works you're kind of getting into like you know, video game uh, slash like uh, young adult novelist territory. And I like that they didn't bother doing any of that shit. Except for, uh, you know, the part where Simon just tells that kid, yeah, you can't do magic. <laughs> Fucking impossible. Don't try. Yeah, he does a lot of um, 
telling people to not do what he's doing. Pretty much everyone in the movie, he does some version of that with. There's a, a little bit of uncertainty with like the first 20, 25 minutes of this film on whether this guy is actually a wizard or not, or if he's just some sort of con artist. And I am so glad that he wasn't a con artist because I hate shit like that. I, I want to watch magic shit where people are doing magic. Yeah. I want to see monster movies where they're actually monsters and not just a bunch of weird people in the woods. And I, I, to be monsters. I also like the fact that all of the the magic he does in this movie, it doesn't feel like a screenwriter was... Like, sometimes when I see fantasy stuff on screen or horror stuff or I read those kinds of books, it's almost like they imagine magic to be this power with infinite possibilities. Like, you can do anything with it, right? Like, it's just a matter of looking across the room and telekinetically floating something to my hands instead of getting up off the couch. But in this movie, I don't get the sense that magic can do anything. There's definitely limits and rules, and I don't have a firm grasp on what they all are, but it feels like there is a uh, there is a well built world with the rules here that limit the possibilities, and that makes it feel real. I have to say that uh, Simon here, who walks around with uh, a pink scarf and a flowing purple robe the entire time, yeah is surprisingly straight yeah but the all right yeah let's just talk about this now so how would you describe the relationship between simon and his younger friend turk who i believe is a male prostitute if you're gonna if you're asking my impression of watching the first 10 minutes of the movie i thought they were gonna fuck um that doesn't happen in fact, they have a perfectly straight uh, bromance at at most that just doesn't go anywhere romantically. I was very surprised. I I think it doesn't because it was so ta it would have been so taboo to show it then. But I think in every other respect, we are supposed to we're supposed to see a gay subtext here. So then everybody is bi, but they couldn't really say that. I think so. In fact, I might argue that Turk is not bi at all. That all of his like pursuit of women is is his version of being in the closet. Um, I think that he's definitely interested in Simon. Even the one time we hear about him sleeping with a woman, her husband is in the room too. Like there's, I I think the movie is trying to suggest without being too overt that this is some sort of gay relationship. I mean, not to jump ahead too far, but if he doesn't actually go out of his way for women, then why does he touch the religious object? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's wait and talk about that scene because right. I actually really like that scene. Well, here's the trailer. All right. Simon, King of the Witches, starring Andrew Prime. 
a totally new kind of movie experience. I'll open this mirror at 1.33, the precise moment in time when the gods are unable to resist my thrust into their domain. Charge! 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 Here is the modern-day story of a witch, a warlock with the Black Mass, the witch's coven, the curses, the terror, the fears. The fears! Appear in rain for her! Simon, son of evil and darkness. You got it, Simon, king of the witches, starring Andrew Prine and Brenda Scott from the Fanfare Corporation. Read it all. That might be the first time I've ever heard a corporate sponsorship in a trailer. Hmm. On this show, for sure. In general, I don't know. Very seventies. I mean, um, I've heard, I've, I've seen a movie trailer that like promoted an actress's Playboy spread in the middle of it. So yeah, but not like brought to you by. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Hmm. But that was a theatrical trailer, so this at least showed on a screen somewhere at some point. Yeah, I figured it did. I mean, this movie is from 1971, right? Mm. So that would have been, you know, far before video store days. All right, so let's let's talk about the basic setup uh, rather than like do a whole walkthrough. But we have Simon, who is our our main character, our warlock magician. He says the term magician is preferable. So let's be politically correct. He's, <laughs> All right. he's a magician. He, he At the start of the movie, he lives in a storm drain, and he is arrested for va vagrancy. And that's where he meets Turk, who has been arrested, he says, for sitting on a curb. But the implication is clear that he's a prostitute. And Turk, I, I think it's insinuated that he has a client named Hercules, who is this like upper class gentleman who hosts these parties for, um, I guess, influential people in town. And Turk takes Simon to one of these parties, basically to show him off as a, as a real magician. And at this party, Turk meets Linda, who is the daughter of the DA and becomes sort of a romantic interest for the rest of the movie. All right, let's pause that for a second. Yeah. Do you really think that she was a genuine romantic interest in this film? No. Yeah, I think uh, the introductory scene where we have the DA's daughter in the crowd, um, she's listening to a speech by Hercules, Simon comes up from behind her and I can only describe the look on his face as uh, one a predator would show prey before pouncing. I didn't get that. I thought the implication was that they had been together in a previous life. And so his, his expression is like, I know this person, I recognize her, I feel some sort of incredible bond with her, but I have no idea why. Was Is that just a, a hunch? I don't remember anything like that. Well, they both, they both talk about having lived previous lives. 
I got the impression that he wasn't necessarily seeing this girl as a future romantic interest. He was kind of singling her out as someone he knew he could manipulate into performing or cooperating with any hijinks that was going to happen later. Uh, I definitely didn't get that impression, but I, I think that like, that's perfectly valid, right? Because he does seem to surround himself with people who are, uh, who can be manipulated and who are going to be that he's going to be able to use in some way. Um, but no, I, I I didn't get that impression specifically. Simon himself isn't exactly a, uh, a a hard character to like, especially compared to most of the shit we watch. Um, he's like amazingly likable on that on that scale. But I, I don't think his intentions are necessarily the best. They're just hidden well. But maybe I'm reading too much into the script. All right, here's the scene. This is the first time they actually talk to each other. I divine it. Are you psychic? A psychic's passive. I see what I will to see. What do you see now? Someone I've known. Oh, I just had the strangest feeling. It's deja vu. This moment's happened before. Um, so right, yeah. So upon upon reviewing the historical record, uh, Luke is right in that um, Simon does mention that they have met before, although he is very vague about it and does bring up deja vu. But the way he brings it up makes it sound like something mystical instead of like, man, I forgot something that happened and now I'm kind of reminded of it. No, the implication, I think, is that it, deja vu is remembering things from previous lives. That's not how people use it in, like, day-to-day. -day. No, but in the, in the context of the movie, that, yeah, that's what... Yeah, in the context what, of the movie, yeah. It's, like, yeah. all mystical and shit. Yeah. Um, and you know what really does sell his whole character is just his, uh, his lingo. Like, she asks him, you know, are you a psychic? And he says, you know, he is, he divines the future that he only sees what he wills to see. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that stuff really sells the whole warlock image. So let's, let's jump ahead a little bit and talk about the, I think the next really important scene between them, which he is trying to do a ceremony with her. And do you really understand what the purpose of this ceremony is? I don't think you're given enough context to know. Like, it's impossible. Yeah, so at this point, we don't really know what he's trying to do, but he has Linda at his home. At this point, he's moved into an apartment, and she's holding these two big balls. One is red and one is blue. And he cuts her dress off and makes her kneel. And then he takes off his robe so that he's naked and he kneels. And then he starts waving this dagger back and forth and he chants magnetic electric, magnetic electric 
charge, 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 over and over again. And we're going to hear him do this chant quite a bit, by the way. Um, but at some point, the dagger that he's holding flies out of his hand. And he says that the, the ceremony was a failure because essentially he got like aroused. He says that I got caught in my own snare of lust and the gods become jealous. I don't know. He talks to himself for a while. It's very confusing. We're still at the point here. We don't know if he's actually legit or not. Right? Yeah, but I never, I don't know. I never had the suspicion that he wasn't. Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just a suspicious type of person. But uh, for like the first 20, 25 minutes, I'm like, please just be an actual wizard, please. Like I was about begging this film. I mean, maybe it's because I've seen it before, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember ever, ever thinking that. I was more trying to figure out, like, what is it he's trying to do? Well, for one, I'm glad they took off those robes because they're they're ugly, man. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, when you normally see magic in films, everything is like very aesthetically um, like dark and grim and like something you would find in a basement that was forgotten about for a thousand years here. This, this looks like they're fucking wearing clown costumes. And I think that kind of, again, lends this movie its charm because th there's just so many strange things that kind of defy one's expectations of what a warlock's or a magician's ritual would look like. But so hey, I man, there's a tension in the beginning of the scene because he's he has this girl who's obviously vulnerable and kind of helpless. Uh, we find out later that she's not just meek. She's high as balls like the entire time. Yeah, <laughs> she's on um, nondescript black pills that are keeping her high like 24 seven. Yep. Um, by her own volition, nobody's really forcing this on her, although she is being a little bit enabled or by the supplier she is still willingly taking the the drugs anyway so you have this girl cracked out and defenseless in this dude's basement nude and he's just juggling a fucking dagger in front of her shouting magnetic electric you can kind of think that this is going to turn into the human sacrifice that's you know written on the box at, at, after the ritual has failed he like sort of climbs on top of her and we hear crazy sitar music come on do you think the implication is that they fuck here yeah i, I okay. figured yeah i figured but i was I mean, hey the ritual's already fucking gone you might as well you know ride out the lust yeah they they don't show it to us but uh, yeah that's what i assumed happened so anyway one one plot strand through this movie is that he's going to keep trying to pull off this ritual whatever it is um but the first i guess other story that we have happen is there's a guy at one of hercules's parties um his name is colin and Simon gives him a tarot card reading which he clearly does not take seriously and to pay Simon, he gives him a he gives him a bad check that bounces, and Simon goes to see Hercules, and he's like, "This guy screwed me over. Like he should have paid me." And Hercules challenges him 
to get his revenge using magic. And Simon is like, you don't understand what you're asking for, but because you challenged me, I, I have to, he says, I have to do it or I'll lose my power. And so he puts a curse on this guy, Colin. He says that in two days he'll be dead and half of, half of it will be on me and half of it will be on you. And you'll know what that means. Apparently so, what it means is you get visited by a lens flare and it gets kind of weird and that's it. <laughs> yeah, there is a um <laughs> a a floating red orb makes repeated appearances whenever anything bad seems to be happening. Um but it kind of just looks silly. Like there's one point where the red orb opens a door and I thought that was really silly. Yeah, it's pretty silly. But yeah, so he kills this guy by having a flower pot fall off a ledge and land on his face. But he's also a drug dealer, so it's okay. Yeah, he's definitely not a sympathetic character. Like, I wasn't sad that he died. As he's writing the check in front of Hercules, he's like, yo, if this guy's really psychic, he'll know not to cash this. Right. <laughs> Yeah, when when Simon calls him to like complain, uh, he says, didn't you already know that it was bad? And Simon says something like, I'm not psychic. I'm a magician. As if like an ordinary person would understand that distinction. And, and he, uh, Colin says when he gives it to him, the reading was worth every penny of that. He's like a snarky asshole, basically. Yeah, but then he gets killed by a potted plant. Yeah. So when we find out that like Simon is willing to murder people, did that did that impact the way you thought of him? Yeah, it does. I'm kind of let down though that the uh, burden, the so-called burden of the spell that was used to kill this guy, Colin, was kind of just inconsequential to everything else especially for the rest of the film i was kind of hoping for more like uh some sort of like deep mystical penance that he would have to put up with and that maybe hercules could deal with it either but nope um in a in a very quick scene hercules finds simon in his little basement apartment and uh, simon absolves him of his burden with a very simple magic trick yeah, although, I don't know, I kind of give the impression that the end of this movie is all of the bad things that Simon has done, like, basically coming back on him. Because he says that he he's going to have to suffer as well, but he's used to it, and Hercules is not. So I thought maybe he was, like, suffering in anguish in ways that we can't see. Like, perhaps that's the reason why he was living in a sewer to begin with. Like, he just built up so much uh, negative karma that right. where he was at in that point of life. Right. So, like, all the things that are happening to Simon, we don't really know how much of it is because he has agency, how much of it is things he wants to be happening, how much of it is retribution for these bad things he's done. Like, if everything that happens to you is karmic, 
then how do you really keep track of what's causing what? The other thing I thought of is like, yeah, Simon kills this guy. But if you believe in reincarnation, then everything's temporary anyway, right? Like killing someone's not very big deal because they're just going to come back. True, but I mean, it's not very clear as to when you are reincarnated. And that doesn't stop the fact that you've, you know, lost all the progress in your life up to that point. I mean, you can definitely hold that mindset for someone, you know, dying in an accident. Well, hey, you know, that sucks, but they're going to come back. But that I would say reincarnation doesn't make murder any less egregious. I think it makes it less egregious because if what you think is that the soul is what matters and that the body is this temporary thing that like best case scenario it's like a prison for the soul the way uh aunt martha talks in uh private parts about this the body being a prison for the soul then like if you kill someone you're just liberating their soul to come back next time it it doesn't seem so bad we also don't get like the full rule book on reincarnation what if you don't always come back as a person you know, like here we go we have colin as a drug dealer you know he's got like his stable of bitches in like a nice like uh you know upper street apartment in downtown and and then suddenly he reincarnates into a snail yeah i suppose i mean it's perspective right like as the snail he probably wouldn't have you know memories of his past life so maybe he wouldn't really know what he lost but you know it's all it's all about perspective of of some kind of observer right yeah, there's one point where Turk is like, why can't I remember my past lives? And Simon says, because you're not a magician. And besides, you don't have a right to remember. So don't try. I thought that was interesting. Like, I don't know if it's arrogance or if it's like a legit observation, but you don't deserve to remember. There's the possibility that maybe perhaps everybody could do magic if they knew the process and knew what they were doing. But maybe Simon just doesn't want to create more competition for the mirror. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. I think that's the suggestion of the movie to a degree is like mastery of these powers really involves just knowing that they're there. But, but man, going, going back to this reincarnation, oh, maybe we don't want to like spend the entire fucking recording talking about reincarnation um but okay so with that line that kind of makes it indicate that although the spirit remains intact like the essence of the spirit isn't necessarily the same right so it's kind of just like uh recycling a bottle into a doormat you know you're gonna still end up being a completely different person with different personality quirks different uh you know, hobbies, inclinations, all that mess. So it's, I would say murder is still a pretty big deal if you're totally terminating the existence of all of those qualities coming together if they don't just simply come back in a reincarnated, you know, person in the next life. But what if you just view all those things as arbitrary, like arbitrary distractions from your true self, which is like the soul? 
right? I mean, this is this is what I think most evangelical Christians believe that you know all of the the hobbies and interests and experiences and all of that we have on earth like it's all just sort of playthings of satan that what matters is when our soul goes on to be with god in heaven and that's like our true self that's not corrupted by our physical desires i think that's kind of what it would be like in the world of this movie mm, okay like you you don't want to you don't want to be reborn as like a drug pusher and a pimp right like those, <laughs> those aren't positive things to carry on into your next life well i mean if you're if you are a pimp and a drug pusher and you get reincarnated into a pimp and a drug pusher and you can remember those qualities of your past life then hey you got like uh you got advanced knowledge of your profession that you can then build off of, right? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that Simon would see that as a positive, but perhaps I'm wrong. So the other thing that's going on during this time is Turk is really interested in sleeping with this woman who's married. And so Simon helps him cast a spell to get her to, I don't know, fall in love with him or be attracted to him, something like that. Um, yeah, do you remember what this spell involves? Yeah, Simon has him uh, bust a nut into a Campbell soup can. And put some of her hair in it. Yeah, and put some of her hair in it. <laughs> but, but, but he doesn't... What does he call it? Because he doesn't call it sperm or, or oh, yes. like semen. He has a weird name for it. He does. Let's look this up. He refers to it several times throughout the movie. I think it's effluvium or something like that. That sounds right to me. Well, well, what? Effluvium, my boy. The ambrosial fluid from the instrument of love. Oh, <laughs> it's kind of cold in here. Think of the warmth that awaits you. Okay, so effluvium is um, a Latin word that means to flow out or away. Oh, okay. So From I the, think, uh... I think that's what it's uh, it's really referring to because effluvium, as uh, an English word, is uh, a gaseous or vaporous emission, especially a foul-smelling one, or a condition that causes the shedding of hair. Ah. Uh. Yeah, the Latin the Latin expression makes far more sense. So I'm glad we cleared that up. So there's a follow-up scene that I was really confused by, where this is after Turk has, I guess, made love to this woman that they cast the spell for, and he shows up at Simon's, like, screaming that something is wrong. Could you tell what was wrong? Yeah, I think it's a priapism. What is that? Is he had as a an erection that was lasting for way too long? It wouldn't go away. Okay, that's what I thought it was, but it's odd because it's not explicitly said, and the whole scene is, if I understand it correctly, is Simon keeps hinting that he's going to fix it magically he's saying like you know look into my eyes i'll hypnotize you and you won't feel a thing and he's holding a knife and i think he's just trying to scare him out of his erection 
I think the spell was too effective and he got too aroused. So he so aroused that he couldn't, you know, break it himself. So then uh, Simon kind of did some sort of hypnotism trick combined with, uh, you know, threatening to, you know, just lop it off altogether. Okay, now maybe I'm reading too much in, but follow me for a moment. Do I have a choice? No. <laughs> so what What if what's going on here is that um, Turk gets his wish and he gets to sleep with this woman who he has this crush on, but he can't actually get off with her. He still has the erection. He has to go to Simon to have that fixed which I, I think just adds to this suggestion that he's really only interested in Simon. That would be a more interesting script, but I really feel that uh, it, it is the first scenario. I don't know. I think that I think that there's some subtext here that they're really pushing. I mean, but... hey, when, when we bring this back and we, we write the script to submit it to some streaming service, we can make it that way. But I think as far as this film and what the script is calling for, I, I think he just has an erection that won't go away. And the thought of lopping it off is enough to, well, maybe there's like a little bit of magic in there too, but that's enough to cure the issue. Okay, so let's say I'm wrong and that it really is just this surface level and like I'm reading too much into it. What do you think the point of the scene is? Is it supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to be show us how clever Simon is? Like, why do you think it's here? I mean, it's a pretty good, uh, you know, relational relationship character building moment for these two. I think this uh, this help builds their dynamic that simon is someone that's uh dependable for his friends when he's not using them for weird ass fucking rituals i don't know it's it's a very odd scene to me it, it is comedic it is comedic though because after the erection goes away the kid goes into the bathroom and fucking urinates for like three minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and simon keeps like looking back like is it is it still going on <laughs> Yeah, that that actually was a little funny, um, but no, I I I'm going on record that I think that the there is a gay subtext here that runs throughout the entire movie, and I'm only becoming more convinced of it. I mean, there's a lot of crossover between kink communities and the occult, <laughs> like and, and especially occult practitioners. So it, it goes hand in hand that all this shits in the same film, but. You're spot on that they dial it back a little bit, probably because they didn't want the film to be that taboo. But yeah. if this maybe came out a few years later, maybe they would have gone whole hog, wouldn't wouldn't have held any punches. So another scene I want to talk about is Turk takes Simon to this other like coven of witches, and he tells them ahead, he tells Simon ahead of time like. You know, this woman calls herself the queen of the witches, but she's really just an old broad. Like, they can't actually do magic. But when I told them that you were a real magician, uh, they got excited. So I think that this is the most interesting, like, 10 minutes of the movie. Oh, yeah. This is my favorite scene. So the the 
the head witch, I guess, is played by a woman named Ultraviolet. Um, she was one of um, she was one of Andy Warhol's followers. Uh, she was in in the factory with like Joe D'Alessandro, who we talked about in our Frankenstein Dracula episode. Yeah, you um, just can't forget a guy like Joe D'Alessandro. No, of well, of course not. Um, so when they go in, she's like leading a group of people chanting. Like when you think of satanic ceremonies from the seventies, that that's this scene. It's like very archetypal. But she's saying that you know Simon. He worships an inferior god, that they worship the queen of the night, but Simon's god is of the day. And as they do their ceremony, he just stands in the back and kind of watches them. Do, do you think he's just amused by them? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if he's disgusted or entertained, but he is just along for the ride and he is not buying any of it. Yeah, I I don't want to I don't want to suggest that this performance isn't good. It's actually really good. Um and he he has a whole range of emotions that like cross his face, but I can't really figure out what he thinks of this. Whether he thinks like, "Oh, they're just different from me. I'm going to be respectful," or uh yeah, this is ridiculous nonsense or I need to prove how superior I am to these people. Like I can't really tell what his prevailing state of mind is. Try to put yourself in the headspace of a, a pseudo immortal magician. <laughs> <laughs> and you're watching a bunch of mere mortals uh, make a mockery of the thing that your entire existence is based around. So do you see these people with enough respect to be offended by what they're doing? Or are they just so beneath you, like they're ants, just like pantomiming shit they don't understand? I, I think it's closer to the ants, but there is a moment where he seems a little taken aback, and that's when Ultraviolet pulls back this curtain, and there's like this goat head behind it. <laughs> it's not just the goat head, it's a full-on goat <laughs> trapped. It, it's, it's, there's, there's a throne a makeshift throne and there is a body on the throne and this goats this entire ass goat has its head stuck through the back of the throne to make it look like the goats is part of the body on the throne it it actually looks really eerie i think like yeah I'm, oh it could be like a jacob sheep but whatever it's it's in that like demonic you know uh, farm animal category but in the context of the movie, are we supposed to think that this is actually a person with a goat head, or are we supposed to think that Ultraviolet is pulling this ridiculous stunt? Gosh, um, I, I kind of assumed it was supposed to be representative, but I don't know. These, these people seem pretty into it. And according to IMDb, uh, a lot of the actresses in the scene were, or actors as well, were also uh, practicing witches. So they were mm -hmm. at least going along with it. <laughs> Yeah, so I, Simon seems a little bewildered by the goat head on the body, but yeah, I, I don't know if he thinks it's real or if he he understands that it's an illusion or a trick or or what. But anyway, all the women are blindfolding the men and making them kneel, so it's clear that this group is like 
a matriarchy, uh, I guess, whereas Simon sees himself as sort of patriarchal. But while this is all going on, Turk sneaks through this curtain into this side room where this woman is lying naked on a table holding uh, a skull in each hand. This is my favorite moment in the movie. He reaches to touch under this little loincloth thing she's wearing and she lifts her head up and says don't touch me i'm a religious object <laughs> which is like incredibly funny to me <laughs> yeah this this is definitely the high point of the film not not to say that you know the rest of the film doesn't live up to this moment but this is the best the turk is but, just like oh okay this is what i'm saying <laughs> though man if if he was in the closet why would he be curious about the religious object? I think that I don't know. I see. I think everyone's supposed to be bi, but they had to hold their punches on the gay shit. That's what I think is going on here. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think even if you're like attracted to one gender, if you have a naked body in front of you. You're like, I think there's a natural instinct to touch. That is by curiosity talking. Oh, well, may, and, and maybe I'm just a pervert in general. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, you have to be some kind of deviant to, to be watching all of this shit that we've been watching. So I, I think you're in good company. OK, all right, then I I, I am uh, I'm accepting of my perversions. <laughs> um, but while this shit is going on with Simon and the witches, so-called witches, they are doing stuff behind the curtain because once Simon uh, has had enough of the charade, he picks up a broom that was laying on the side of the, <laughs> the side, <laughs> like at the sidewall and just saying, and just starts saying like, this is about as real as what y'all are doing and starts riding the broom like he's flying. <laughs> which upsets everybody <laughs> and causes uh and causes them to have to flee for their lives yep and yeah so you see uh turk in the back like being like oh shit baby i gotta go <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so sometime after this simon gets this idea there's this there's this older i guess gay guy who's hitting on turk at um one of Hercules's parties and this gives Simon an idea that if he could do the ritual he was trying earlier with someone who gets him excited but not aroused then it will work is that the is that the connotation I assumed it because the lust is only one way that's why it would work Oh, maybe that's maybe that's what they meant. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't quite understand it, but but basically he gets this older gay guy to uh whose name is Stanley to Stanley to step in and and do the ceremony instead of Linda. And Stanley is played by Richmond Shepherd, who was in a decent amount of movies, but he was more famous as a mime apparently. Wow. All right. But yeah, this scene is kind of funny to me. Like Stanley, Stanley's basically like, well, this is uh this is not what I expected to be going on, but like at least it's different. 
but mostly he just looks bored. Like he's waiting for the sex to start. He doesn't care about all this uh, <laughs> magnetic electric shit. <laughs> uh, what you're willing to put up with for some good sex, I guess. Well, hey, uh, I guess Turk and Simon are good looking guys. So this he's, he's throwing this dagger back and forth, saying his shit while uh, Stanley's derriere is pointed his direction. And the ritual works because he's able to hold on to the dagger. Wow. But it's fucking hilarious when you see the result of the ritual. <laughs> There's an altar in front of Stanley covered in candles and a little ornamental stand. And on top of it looks like a very badly designed dildo that then becomes filled with royal purple i'm assumed it was gay energy it just kind of slowly covers the entire rod <laughs> you see this this shit is all phallic this is this is us i swear this is all about like gay energy and attraction and latent homosexuality i don't i don't know there's a lot of sexuality going on here um but once the cylinder like starts to glow purple um it you know simon is really excited i think he actually jumps up in the air yeah, <laughs> on, a, on a moment but he tells he tells turk do you realize a cosmic event has occurred <laughs> he says it happens once in a dozen lifetimes and the old guy just seems to disappear like i don't know what happens to him oh yeah they used them they just kicked them out yeah that dude didn't even get laid. But the the police at one point have a search warrant for his house, and they take a bunch of herbs that I guess they think are drugs, and they take the cylinder. And they find out that the cylinder is, is not radioactive, but when you put it near roses, it causes them to wilt. It, do we know what the cylinder is actually for? I don't think the roses are wilting. I think the idea is that nobody can touch the rod directly. And when they point it at the flowers, like from a tray, the mm -hmm. flowers uh, get pushed away from it. Uh, so nobody can pick up the rod, but I'm assuming Simon. And, and what do you think its purpose is? I can't remember exactly when it's explained, but there is a scene at some point where simon is explaining to turk the purpose of this large antique mirror in the basement and i cannot remember if the rod is associated with the mirror at that point or after the um the ritual is complete but we are led to believe that this uh super homosexual magic rod is the key to entering heaven or the realm of the divine. I think it's a better way to put it. Maybe it's like in Zardoz. You know, Zardoz chants, the gun is good, the penis is bad. Because the penis <laughs> is like this entranceway, right, into into uh, the supernatural, the um, the divine. So the the rest of the movie is where my understanding gets a little hazy. Because basically, 
it, Simon gets involved with these two drug dealers because Linda's father, who is the DA, is cracking down on the drug activity in the town, and there's a undercover narcotics guy who has, like, the goods on them, and they want Simon to take care of it. This whole part of the movie is what seems the strangest to me. It is a little disjointed, but here's what I think is going on. So Linda's father, the DA, is not exactly uh, satisfied with the fact that her uh, that his daughter is going with a, a magician. <laughs> <laughs> like, why can't you just find yourself a good lawyer or a doctor? You, you gotta, gotta date a magician. So I think there's this abuse of power where he decides to try to tangle Simon up in this drug probe, this, this purge that they're trying to invoke to clean up the city. And so they raid the, 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 the apartment on the basis of they are going to find drugs, but they don't find anything. However, there is a informant slash patsy that the city uses to implicate basically anybody that they want to be, um, you know, to take to court. So regardless of whether they actually have evidence, they have this guy's testimony. And as long as he sticks to his story, you know, it's all good. Simon says, fuck this shit, allies himself with the local drug dealers to help them get rid of their problem with their assistance. Yeah, so there's this there's this whole scene where Simon is in the woods talking to a tree with Linda and he's basically saying like you've got to stay clean and not do any drugs for the next 2 weeks because I'm going on this spiritual journey and like I'll be vulnerable and the people I love will be vulnerable and it seems to have something to do with the fact that he finally mastered the you know the cosmic purple phallus and he is distracted from whatever pilgrimage he was going to go on by this whole drug thing and he ends up sacrificing this narcotics guy down in the sewer to Moloch. This was an interesting scene to me. He has the guy like tied down to a a wooden plank and he keeps like screaming into the sky for Moloch and he says that um that this guy is going to die but he'll serve a new master in death, a far more formidable one than his old one. And he says, I bring a gift for he who slumbers. Yeah, no reincarnation for this guy. He's going straight to the armies of hell or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think and that was the fate of, um, so, so, you know, the Forgotten Realms, like campaign setting for like Dungeons and Dragons. I'm pretty sure the punishment for hell was being reincarnated as a demon in some either as a as a as a a soldier in, in the army of a of a devil or a demon so i'm wondering if that whole like dynamic was pulled from some sort of uh like a cult book or something 
from uh fr from like maybe the same material that this guy was writing the script off of yeah maybe he wasn't practicing warlock if i remember correctly moloch was a a god in the old testament that people were like sacrificing kids to and shit and it was one of the you know when moses was like you know jewish people you can't you have to reject all these other gods and we have to go to war you know with the the mennonites and the canaanites and all of them moloch was one of those gods um so i guess kind of a a bad dude you know you sacrifice people to him but anyway so suffice it to say his like pilgrimage with the trees and all of that like that's not happening instead he's sacrificing people in the sewers and uh the da is kind of trying to come down on him and this all builds up to the uh as the box calls them the psychedelic special effects where simon is looking in his mirror and uh, you want to describe what happens here? Well, before we get to the mirror, Simon decides to uh, enact revenge on the establishment. Oh, yeah. For the whole their attempt to, uh, to take a shot at him. Because, you know, if you're going to if you're going to hit the king, you better kill the king. Simon casts a, uh, a fucking rainstorm spell that floods the city so badly that it single-handedly destroys like all the city's infrastructure yep i don't exactly know how bad uh, maybe he summoned like a category three hurricane in like the middle of the U united states or something so they just they just didn't have the the infrastructure for it but uh yeah not only does the entire city fall apart and the power fluctuate but the the police chief himself, I think, slips on the sidewalk outside and dies <laughs> from like a heart attack. Yeah, I think it's the police commissioner. That's what it is the commissioner who is who ultimately is like under investigation because they raid his safe and he's been, I guess, secretly like funding the drug cartel or something. Yes, uh, we find that out in just a hot moment. So Simon in the trailer earlier mentioned that he was specifically going to go into the mirror at 1.33 p.m. I don't know why the gods can't touch that time, but that is that was the original time he was supposed to perform the ritual. But because of the police raid, he missed that time. But he's gonna do it anyway because he's come this fucking far he's got to do something with it and make sure it's not all a lost cause so he sets up the ritual he goes into the mirror yeah and, and while he's doing this i guess linda is dying of a drug overdose yes linda is dying of a drug overdose because did he really ask her to go two weeks without drugs yeah dude she made it like half a day yep i figured and she would apparently it was some pretty pretty gnarly batch so she ends up um dying of an overdose while he's inside this mirror that i can only describe as um first off how long is this scene it's like five minutes long yeah it reminds me of like the last 20 minutes of 2001 a space odyssey where you're like going through uh a laser light show 
It's like a laser light show in a dark room with every single camera trick imaginable. There's like mirror imaging, mirages, transposed images. Everything's in a dark room. Like everything is just sort of um, disjointed. It's it's supposed to be a very disorienting experience because this guy's trying to like dive into some like uh, you know ethereal realm that mankind cannot fucking understand, right? And while he's on this journey to the spirit world, um, that's when he sees not only Linda dying from her overdose but uh the fact that she received the drugs from the police commissioner right and at one point his dagger it looks like falls in a a flushing toilet but it's really supposed to be like the ocean i think but it's like swirling around down into the water if i learned anything about uh magician magic it's that you should never let go of your dagger like i really don't understand why they just don't have like a like a camera strap like around the wrist at all times with this dagger maybe it's like uh you know the mythos is you can't touch it with anything but flesh i don't know i'm just making up witch shit because i don't actually know any but uh, the way this all resolves is the knife reappears later in a puddle of water in the sewer where one of these drug dealer guys grabs it and stabs Simon to death. Well, we should mention why the drug dealers are suddenly killing Simon. Oh, why do you think they are? Because after he stabs him, the one guy says, why did you do that? And he says, I don't know. At some point in this, in this uh, spirit world, uh, or after this like whole spirit world, uh, oh my god, it does look like the dagger's going into a toilet. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Alright, anyway, after this revelation, um, it is found, discovered by the DA that the chief was, you know, complicit in enabling all of the drug dealers that were in the town. What we didn't know at the time was that the police chief was actually protecting all of these dealers because of his crooked deals with them. But now that he that Simon killed him through this fucking rainstorm spell, now the actual crackdown was coming down uh, on all the, the criminals that were pushing drugs. So they were very upset that suddenly this situation that was already at a 10 is now at like an 11. And they, uh, the one guy just got really upset and stabbed uh, Simon, thinking it was going to fix everything. Well, they wanted Simon to like fix everything with magic somehow, but they don't even give him a chance to say anything because the one guy starts stabbing him. And then, like yeah. I said, afterwards, he's like, I don't know why I did that. Probably because he was high. I thought it was, I thought the implication was that it was like cosmic justice, that this was all the like bad shit that Simon did uh, coming back to kill him and like channeling its way through this drug dealer. So like it wasn't really him doing it. It yeah. was like karma. I mean, I think we do get a, a shot of like the upset stormy sky before it happens, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, that that's that's why. Um, I, yeah, so I don't think I don't think he really knows what he's doing because I think that it's it's a kind of magical retribution. 
All right. I'm willing to accept that. All right. Well, anything else you want to discuss before we rate this? No, I think that that sums it up. All right, cool. So give your final thoughts and a rating out of four. I had never heard of this movie before, um, before, before the magic eight ball presented it to us. And, um, you know, that's, I guess that's true for a lot of the stuff here, but not for a film about like magic and sorcery and shit, right? Like most of these kinds of films have some sort of uh, presence that, that persists to modern day. But yeah, I've just never, it's weird that I've never heard of this film until uh, just like a couple weeks ago. I, I really feel like there's enough here that it could make a comeback as a, as a remake. I really do think that um despite the fact that they do hold some uh they do hold back on some of the kink material i mean there's still a lot here that's pretty um that's pretty far out there for the normies um i wish they kind of went all in but maybe because of the production it just wasn't really feasible at the time that this film was made as we said in the beginning this is a film that could only exist in this uh, incarnation during the 70s because there's so many strange experimental things going on here with presentation and the bizarre uh, structuring of the script. Really, it does feel like this was um, either adapted from maybe a novel idea or possibly the idea for a TV series that was just... Um, extended for the length of a film the acting again in this film is incredible especially considering the subject matter um despite some of the the, the absolutely silly rituals and spells that occur uh andrew prine does an amazing job pulling off this character this film could have been easily forgotten uh i mean even more forgotten than than <laughs> it is already um, if it wasn't carried by this guy not to say nobody else was lifting the weight but uh, it, it's really his performance that makes this movie shine this is required viewing for anyone who's into the occult um, there's a lot of I think a lot of, of inspiration that you can see uh, for oh god let me restart that it would not surprise me if there were if this film was extremely um, inspirational to modern interpretations and um, representations of witchcraft in the occult and in modern media. I feel like this is probably a film that's really popular in certain circles, and it's because we're not part of that circle, we just hadn't heard of it until like recently. Um, fantastic film i think it's very entertaining it does get um again a little meandering but if especially if you're aware that the, the script is going to be like that ahead of time it's definitely not an issue the journey itself is still worth uh, experiencing and overall this is probably the only unicorn film i've ever seen that's any good so um i'm, I'm gonna give this one a, a solid three stars because this is a film that's going to stick with me. I think I think uh, we covered another unicorn movie, The Witch Who Came from the Sea, that I think is good. Oh, whoa, whoa, that was Unicorn. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right. So, second best unicorn film here. 
Well, I yeah, I mean th- this both of the VHS releases of this movie are are really rare. They're just put out in very limited numbers, I think. I mean, you're going to pay like 3 to 400 dollars for a VHS copy of this. Um and I think that's why it's just so unknown because I, the DVD came out I don't know, 2010 thereabouts and and that's the first time I ever heard of anyone besides me having seen it. But yeah, it's definitely, it is a 70s film through and through. Like the language, the fashion, the sensibility is just very 70s to me. I'm not sure you could update this or I'd want to see it updated. I just, I feel like it would become, I don't know, what's a modern equivalent? Like, I feel like they would try to like Buffy it, right? Where they tried to make it more like popcorn entertainment. And instead of these, these rules and rituals that seem sort of natural and mysterious and steeped in nature, you'd get like a really thought out rule system of magic. And I think that would kind of dilute it. So anyway, I I think that this is a very uniquely seventies film and, and I appreciate it for that. Um, I don't really think it's a good film. Like, I think that the script is a mess. It's just all over the place in terms of the plot development and the flow of the film. Um, But each scene on its own is really, like, intensely good. Where you've got really strong acting, really great atmosphere, um, this sort of sense that there is this deep mythology behind everything even if it's not being explained to us um i really like the the ritual scenes and the the satanism scene with the coven of witches it it all seems very authentic but yeah there there are moments where it kind of borders on being laughable and i'm not sure that's intentional i think the most interesting thing here is what i see as like the gay or or queer or kinky whatever you want to call it subtext that i think i don't know if it's what the film is about entirely but i think it like suffuses each scene and the fact that a movie was made in the 70s and was this gay for lack of a better word um i think is really interesting and, and makes it really unique uh so anyway that was a really meandering review, but I'm going to give this three stars as well. I think that's fair. Well, meandering review for meandering script. It's on, it's on brand. Ah, uh, yes, totally fair. All right, so we are going to consult uh, the Magic 8-Ball and see what we are doing next week. I'm going to give it a shake. And let's see. All right, interesting. So next week we're doing, uh, we're going back to shot on video territory. We're doing the 1991 Kingdom of the Vampire. This is a J.R. Bookwalter film. Uh, He's most famous for um, The Dead Next Door, but I actually like this movie a lot more. Um, It was co-written in stars Matthew Jason Walsh, 
Matthew Jason Walsh, tongue twister, uh, who um, I th- he might have invented emo before emo was a thing. Uh, he plays possibly the most pitiful character I've ever seen in a movie. Um, but yeah, I really like this movie. I- I'm really curious what you end up thinking about it. Man, we've seen some pretty pitiful characters. You you saying this guy takes the cake? Yes. All right. Yeah. I think he's likable. Don't get me wrong. I, I like him as a character, but he's pitiful. I also think this is the first vampire movie we're doing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So it's about time. Like, it's a horror podcast. We got to pay these classic monsters their due. Yeah, with the classic uh, that everybody knows, um, Kingdom of the Vampire. (laughs) Hey, this movie got a remake. If if a movie gets a remake, I feel like it's at a certain level of notoriety. Uh, That's probably not true in this case. Mm, Yeah. I don't know. Anyhow, um, yeah, check this one out if you have not seen seen it. Um, You might be able to rent it on Amazon. It might be on Tubi, but... It's definitely on DVD. Um, the VHS will kind of set you back, but um, it's definitely attainable for not too much. So check out Kingdom of the Vampire and join us next week. Uh, we will be talking about the 1991 version, just for clarify, clarity. Uh, with that said, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything we do. And... Uh, Leland, you got any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Sweet. And I'm off to see uh, John Waters. And uh, they're showing pink flamingos afterwards. So, um, yeah, I'm going to have a fun night. Everyone else, join us next week and talk about Kingdom of the Vampire. Have a good one.